From the soon-to-be former LARB HQ in Silver Lake, Los Angeles, California, I'm Colin Marshall. This is the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. Today I'm sitting down with Keenan Norris, who both teaches English literature and African-American literature at Evergreen Valley College and is the author of a brand new novel, Brother and the Dancer, about two young people, one man, one woman, one young man, one young lady, growing up in the San Bernardino Valley with intertwined lives. And I, I'm going to ask you first... Tell me about the heat over there. <laughs> it is very hot. The one of the kind of themes of the book is is its setting, and that setting is characterized um, more than anything by the uh, sometimes extreme heat of that of that valley. Mm. Um, just growing up there, uh, you know, in the San Bernardino Valley, I was constantly aware of the either how hot it was any one time or the impending, you know, the impending doom of a hundred plus degree days. And I wanted to make that part of the first book just because again, it, it, it so characterizes the area. I think there's a, a tremendous difference between a place that is not accustomed to extreme weather and one that is, I live in the Bay area now and the Bay is a mild climate um, and it's kind of characterized as the California climate. But when you go out to say the San Bernardino Valley, you realize that the, that that California climate is one of extreme heat, high winds, um, you know, and, and so forth. It's a, it's a much more um, difficult, you know, set of environs. And I think that that does, uh, does have an effect on, um, the, the, the nature of a place and um, the people who live there. There's this image I liked in the novel, which is a character uses as a gauge of the heat how fast the ladies push the strollers along when they're pushing a stroller. Is this an image you, you have from your childhood thinking they're going slow? This is not going to be a good day. <laughs> definitely. Mm. Definitely. I you know, just remember, um, and I don't even have to remember because every time I go down there, I see it. The, the uh, young women with their, um, with their strollers pushing their kids along. And yes, the slower they, the slower they're going, um, you, you typically the, uh, the hotter it is, you can't really count on little kids because they have boundless energy and, you know, they don't, they don't care if it's 130 <laughs> degrees. Um, they're going to be bouncing off the walls, but that, that would be one, uh, one indicator. And the other, I think from the same, uh, description that you're referencing the heat waves themselves, mm. you know, when you can see the heat waves, you know, say above your kneecap, that's 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 a sign that it's mm. it's pretty damn hot. Mm. Now, how close did you grow up to where the the two kids at the center of the book, Tosan and Erica, grew up? Where, where were you in relation to them? Okay, geographically or whatever else. Sure, sure. Um, so, I was born in Fontana, California. Never lived there, but that's where the hospital was. I grew up in Pomona, Rialto. And Highland, California. Mm. So in the general geographic uh, area, now Tucson and Erica both live in Highland, California, which is where I spent the vast majority of my childhood. Mm. I think we, um, I lived for the first, my parents had gone to the Claremont Colleges. So I lived for the first maybe two or three years of my life in, in and around Pomona. But uh, after that, they bought their first house in Rialto. And because of the uh, what they saw as an in inadequate school system there, they moved on to Highland, mm. which was kind of a 
growing suburb at the edge of the desert. Right. The school consideration often moves a family way out to what a kid right. feels like is middle nowhere, right? Right. Hmm. And uh, er- uh, so Tucson and Erica both live in Highland, hmm. but they live in uh, two different parts of Highland. It's a little town of maybe 60,000 people, but um, like you know, most cities, is divided by a freeway hmm. that um, completely separates the two sides socioeconomically. Um, my parents being college graduates, I grew up on, you know, the suburban side of Highland. The east one with the hill, right? Right. Okay. Yes. The, yeah. East Highland, as they call it. Even though, again, I think it's probably too small to have an east <laughs> and a west. <laughs> yeah. But uh, so that's where I grew up. Um, but, you know, we were um, <clears throat> also Highland neighbors, San, San Bernardino, which is one of the poorest uh, cities in the country. And I didn't know. I, was, I think people aren't aware of that. Yeah, I believe in 2012 they were rated the second poorest city after Detroit. Oh, geez. That's not – I mean, yeah. at least we're not Detroit is what they can say, there, which is not much you can say. Yeah, I don't know if this is positive advertising for the city, but so it is, right? And basically West Highland is much more part of San Bernardino. Hmm. Um, so – uh, in moving from Rialto to Highland, you know, our circumstances changed quite a bit. Mm. And um, I, so I, I suppose, you know, my, um, my childhood was closer to Toussaint's mm. uh, who grows up in the suburbs than Erica who grows up on, you know, uh, as I heard the other day, you know, in a place where there are two sides of the tracks and both of them are wrong. <laughs> right. But uh, um, it's all relative. Right. Yeah. Now, you you have these characters think about their surroundings differently. I, I think in when the, the narration, I don't think Toussaint says this, but the narration kind of gets you into his head on this matter, that he, he's in a city an hour east of a city that matters. And Erica says, I think to Toussaint, yeah, well, where, where I'm from, the other side, the other side of Highland, we think of it as a city. Mm-hmm. Now, what's, what's the divide? Did you notice that divide growing up that like people from one part would think they were their world was smaller, I guess. Is that what it comes down to? Right. I think they both feel constricted in very different ways. Erica feels that she lives in an inner city, not, you know, basically different from Harlem or, you know, the South side of Chicago or East Oakland or any of the other, um, kind of, um, you know, places that we would, um, characterize as ghettos in the United States, um, just because it's a smaller city doesn't really uh, change its, um, you know, what, what it is. Um, Tucson feels constricted um, and, you know, living an hour away from a city that matters because he is, uh, because he feels constricted by the suburbs. Mm -hmm. He is, um, he has been given a name of, you know, based upon Tucson Louverture, the Haitian revolutionary who led the, only recorded uh, successful slave revolution in the history of the world, founding the, the country of Haiti. Mm-hmm. And so he has this, um, he's been raised with this ideology of the black freedom struggle, mm-hmm. not only within this country, but globally. And yet his life circumstances in no way match that. He, you know, mm-hmm. he's a privileged kid in the Southern California suburbs. And so he feels constricted in a completely different way than Erica. Erica's materially constricted and Tucson feels kind of, um, you know, more abstractly, um, mm. you know, historically constricted. Uh, maybe, um, an analogy would be 
you know, a you know, man with high ambitions, with great ambitions, who not living in a time of where you know where there are um, mm. great stakes. I think of a, maybe it's a multi-bus journey Tucson has to make to go to this. Uh, not not really a conference, just like a public event about violence in San Bernardino, and it's, he thinks this is another world. Like, right. oh wait, what what are these black people doing? Like, right. he doesn't feel he doesn't really feel a kinship with them. Uh, and Erica also has this moment of realization, like these. She almost says like these these problems that beset black. What's going on with black people? They both have mm-hmm. they both have those moments, don't they, where they think they just step back from a second from quote unquote their people and think, hi. What's what's going on here? What is that feeling? Uh, well, I mean, I think it has less to do with the way they experience it because they are black is as um, themselves kind of versus, you know, mm-hmm. the, um, the 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 black community that they either are a part of in Erica's case or are um, observing in Tucson's case. Mm-hmm. However, you know, it's really a more kind of archetypal um you know, more archetypal conflict between the individual and the society, you know, not totally different from, uh, you know, any number of, you know, I don't want to compare the book to anything, but any number of other, um, uh, any number of other characters, um, who are positioned, um, within their narratives outside of the, maybe the arc of their times or outside of the governing ideologies and practices of their culture. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, you know, kind of a necessary passage in in each individual's life where we individuate ourselves. And that's simply what they're, what they are consciously doing as opposed to unconsciously mm. doing. Yeah. So there's some ways you can frame this as a, were you thinking of it as a coming of age novel? Um, absolutely. Mm. Yes, it's absolutely a coming of age novel. One thing I would say about, um, to go back to that scene where Tucson, um, it goes, he takes a couple buses to the stop the violence event the reason that he is so um, taken aback by it is because he is from su- such a different culture. How, um, and he also is not, he's not aware of the, 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 the um, kind of constancy of the, of the issues that are, are being dealt with. I think that oftentimes people unfamiliar with, um, you know, with um, urban poor communities, unfamiliar with black communities, um, will, um, you know, criticize those communities for being, um, neglectful of, um, their problems, not, not doing anything to solve their problems when in not realizing that these are conversations and, you know, and the, um, debates, um, that are going on constantly Mm. within the, within these communities that, that community forum happened every weekend. Mm. Right. Oh, that was a regular thing. Right. And it's just that, um, Tucson happened into it at that moment. So it's singular to him. Mm, right. Mm. Um, and he doesn't understand that these are not only the problems persist, but also the uh, attempts to remedy them. Mm. Right. And even Erica herself has these moments where she's thinking, why do, why, why do these people not address their problems? Doesn't she, she has, mm. she has at least one moment like that. Mm. So it even happens within character in that setting to think what's, mm. what's going on here. Why are we, why are we letting this happen? When that's also the words you could put into the mouth of a pundit who doesn't know what's going on. Who says, why are these people, mm. why are these people not solving their problems? It just, right. uh, you can, those words can come out differently from different perspectives, can they within and without? Sure. Um, I think that Erica is very naturally, um, disturbed by some of the, um, destructive behaviors mm. 
that uh, she sees around her, that she lives with, that she's hindered by. Um, but I think the big difference between Erica and, say, the kind of conservative pundit class that use, you know, poor black communities as a, um, you know, uh, as a, um, you know, set of targets mm-hmm. to, you know, to lob their criticisms at is that because Erica is a part of this community, right? She, um, not only is, she not only is, um, you know, um, she not only is annoyed by, it, not only irritated by it, but she's also, um, she's also in love with it, mm-hmm. right? Because, you know, this is the p- place where she's grown up. This is the place where her friends and her lovers are, the place where her parents are. Mm. Right? And so, you know, her realization throughout the book uh, at the, you know, by the end of the book is that she can no more give it up. She can no more um, escape from it, right. than she can from herself. Mm. Um, it doesn't really matter where she goes. Right. Um, this is, you know, this is a destiny that is, um, it, it, it simply is her destiny. Hmm. Now, did the did the setting of, of Highland, California, of the San Bernardino Valley, seem to you a, a fruitful setting when you first began writing? Did you think you were always going to write something that came out of there? Yes. Um, so Susan Strait, uh, who I worked with at UC Riverside, <clears throat> uh, writes about Rio Seco, um, dry river of uh, that represents Riverside, California. And... Susan was very good at um, not only encouraging myself, but other writers um, uh, coming out of um, the Inland Empire, uh, like Alex Espinoza and Michael Jaime Becerra and E.J. Jones and other people to um, write about to write about our locale, mm. right? And in and in doing that, I think um, I felt empowered um, to you know to place my first book there. Um, you know, we can think about other writers as well who've taken, you know, seemingly nondescript, you know, local settings um, that escape popular notice and uh, and, you know, make a make memorable fiction out of that. So I, I wanted to do that. I don't plan to write all my books, right. you know, uh, set there, but <clears throat> it's it's a fruitful landscape, among other things, because it is not as. Uh, extensively explored as Los Angeles or the Bay Area or certainly New York City. And is huge as well. So you have that, you have the territory and the fact that people haven't gone into it, literarily speaking. Right. And I also um, like the fact that even though there are, you know, my my primary subject in this book is, you know, is black youth um, in different kind of states of being, the um, situation of these, of these characters in the desert is different from the you know, typical places that we see, you know, black people portrayed as living in. Right. Um, Erica might see herself as living in, you know, another version of Harlem, but mm. folks in Harlem aren't going <laughs> to see that, right? Aren't going to, aren't going to um, share that opinion with her mm. um, you know, for a variety of reasons. So I like that. I liked, uh, I like, um, you know, showing the diversity of our experience as, as black folk. So when did you become aware? I mean, I guess you're always aware technically of this, but that you were, living in a place that you came from a place called the Inland Empire, this distinct place, this distinct part of California. Do you know what I mean? It's not Los Angeles. It's yeah. not, it's, it's this maybe neglected half of, of a very well-known state. When did you find, when did you realize you were in a place with an identity? Let's say that. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, 
when it when the temperature ga- gauge rose over a hundred degrees, uh, stroller started slowing down. I see. Yeah, yeah, that that would that would be um, the 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 main marker. But I would you know really point again to um, the influence not only of of Susan Strait but of reading you know writers like William Faulkner, mm. um, other writers who you know Cormac McCarthy, other writers who who have a very strong sense of place mm. in in their work. <clears throat> um, I really um, was able to, you know, take from that the the lesson that every place is individual, right? That every setting uh, has particular and unique and unique value to it. And in you know, and in realizing that, realizing the potential, right? Not only for literary, you know, um, representation, but for other representations as well. Mm. When someone first starts reading your novel, they might think, "Wow, this." The, this the San Bernardino Valley. It's it's as bad a place as I thought. They'll, they'll their mind will go to the with the worst of the details, the least desirable, the least comfortable details. You include what kind of what did you have in your mind? What kind of balance did you want to strike between revealing what is uncomfortable, painful about that place, and uh, also redeeming it from stereotypes about it? You know, because people people just don't make that hour drive very often if they are from west of it. You know, sure. Um, well, I would say that. I tried as much as possible to keep um, to, to to focus my writing on the exploration of the consciousness of the two main characters, mm-hmm. right? And not to worry uh, particularly about what um, stereotypes people might or might not see them or their place fulfilling, because I think the more deeply you investigate, you know, particular character, whether of a setting or a person, right? That that um, eventually breaks beyond stereotype. We all do things that You're are zoomed in too far at right, that point. Right. We all do things that are stereotypical. Mm. You know, no matter who we are, right? We tend to externalize and say, "Wow, that person is you know acting in some <laughs> some sort of way that's stereotypical," right? But uh, we all do things that are stereotypical. But if you got to know any one of us, any person, you know, on this earth, then. Um, then their their particular character would go well beyond that. So I just tried not to worry about that and just go as deep as possible. Now, one of these two characters you focus on, Toussaint, seems like he's he's he thinks so much about what he is going to do or what he could do that I feel like for a while I was I thought he acted more acted more than he did. He doesn't take as many actions as I think. You know, did you want to make a character kind of up in his head? Mm-hmm. Right. That was part of the uh, dichotomy I wanted to draw. Right. So I was thinking about what he's going to say to a girl and doesn't. You know. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. That that was the dichotomy I wanted to draw. Um, Toussaint is very much up in his head. He is. Um, he is. He he's been raised to be an intellectual. He's born and bred to to be up in his head. Um, Erica can't afford that luxury. Right. But Tucson, and also what I wanted to uh, portray in, with Tucson's character is that he is trying to craft an identity, not only uh, in the present tense, but an, an historical identity. And he mm-hmm. wants to understand himself within the broad sweep of black history. Mm-hmm. And that is, incredibly difficult for somebody who's 15 years old. Right. <laughs> so, mm. so he's at, you, you find him at various points in the book, somewhat at a loss, but I think what, you know, I've been, and frankly, I've been surprised by this, but in some of the reactions I've gotten so far, one of the things that seems to draw people most to the story is, 
Toussaint's um, Toussaint's imaginative journey. Mm. Right? Mm. And this is not always Toussaint's imagination is not always a positive thing for him. He has recurring nightmares of being chased by by dark figures. Right? Mm. He says he says at one point, or he thinks like if I if the if it wasn't if the figures chasing me in my nightmares were were white, I would fight them. But they're not white. You know what 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 is that? Mm. Right. I think that. Well, first of all, Tucson is being pursued by the legacy of his great grandfather and his grandfather. And he wants to understand <clears throat> this um, largely unrecorded and orally, you know, um, passed along um, history, this legacy. He wants to understand it, and the only way he can come into any control of it is through his imagination. But what he finds uh, as he makes that journey into the deep is that it is a, that it's a dangerous journey, and so the, these, this figure that pursues him is his own, in many ways, his own fear at what he will find mm. right down there. Um, that he may find people of uh, of such strength and um, perseverance that he um, will never be able to measure up to, you know, folks who mm. survived, you know, the, the, the racial terrorism of, uh, you know, um, earlier uh, bygone epics in, you know, in America that he, or in the, 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 um, the kind of poverty that um, people, that mm. pe uh, people used to experience here, or that he'll find a, uh, you know, another, you know, another danger, some other undiscovered country. He describes at one point his ancestors having a kind of like, what is it, country strength that he could never match. And he feels like he's been weakened by his suburban up upbringing, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, yes. Did yeah. you feel weakened by your suburban upbringing as well? Yes. Mm. I think that uh, there's, there's a, you know, my mother is, and I want to say this, um, myself, I, I'm not, um, Tucson, Tucson's right. not me, but, um, but obviously my experiences are um, my experiences inform both his character and Erica's. Um, what I would say is that um, my mother you know, was uh, born in a small town called Raisin City outside of Fresno um, in uh, very, very poor conditions. And there is a uh, strength and a, and a perseverance that is required um, there that you know one can't know unless one experiences it mm. you know i don't know what it's like to go hungry mm. um i don't know know what it's like to have my back up against the wall in the way that um uh people in um you know some of my uh forebears mm. have and for tucson uh the way this translates is that he is he becomes obsessed with this history right and obsessed with um, not only bringing imaginative, imaginative control to it, but also measuring himself mm. right, against mm. it. You talk about him placing himself in the, in the narrative of black history, but the challenge there, one of the challenges has got to be, well, is that the history of all black people everywhere? A daunting task. Is that the history of his family? An even more daunting task in a way, because he's so much closer to it, right? right. Mm. Yeah, he, uh, he doesn't know what he's doing. <laughs> <laughs> He, he doesn't know what he's doing, but 
Um, no one does at that age, I guess. Right. But I think that, um, you know, as I was writing the character, I, I thought a lot about, um, Julian Sorel in the red and the black, um, a book about a kind of post Napoleonic figure who is, um, who, uh, grows up with the ideology of, you know, the kind of Napole- uh, the Napoleonic man, um, this man of greatness, but who is in a living in a time where a great action is not called for. Mm. Right. And Toussaint is, you know, very much the child of the post civil rights age mm. where, um, the problems that black people face are, um, perhaps no less daunting, but far more, far, far, uh, more complex and, uh, less easily opposed. Mm. It's, it's, you can't stake out your position against the problems as easily as once you could. They're, they're not as stark. They're, you're, the enemies are not as clear and present. Right. Mm. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, where, um, for example, you know, uh, white society had a system of, you know, white preferment that was, you know, obvious and, uh, tangible and systematic and legal, right. Uh, that doesn't exist in, in that way today. Um, and certainly for Tucson in, you know, his suburban community, that kind of struggle, uh, seems very distant to him. Um, the problems that he, uh, sees when he takes that bus trip seem to be self-inflicted, right? They are not completely self-inflicted, but, um, but without, you know, more, um, experience and study, he has no way to understand that. So he's looking at a, you know, a radically different landscape from the one that, uh, the ideology that he's been born into seems to describe. And he's not sure how to deal with that. When you're facing, when you're trying to figure out the causes of the problems any people face today. Did you think a historical understanding is the first thing to get as deep as possible? Is that the, the main prerequisite to, to know what's going on? Um, I would say is, you know, um, somebody who kind of fancies himself an academic. Sure. Yeah. I, I think that, uh, you need to know, you need, need to know the source points mm. and that's what Tucson is, you know, is looking for. And, you know, it redounds, as you said, you know, less to black history than to his family's history. And the same with Erica, mm. right? Um, the difference being that Tucson is obsessed by his family's history and certainly sees that as the uh, core issue, understanding this history. I would agree with Tucson, but Erica, you know, has a totally different take on things and uh, does not care for the, her um, family's history at all and only learns it involuntarily um, mm. through, you know, loud arguments that her parents have that where they, um, disclose information that they even don't are not meaning to <laughs> she is able to step back and collect these collect this information about her family about her situation about where she is she's she has uh how, how she she seems to have a hmm. she seems more observant than people immediately around her are you think that's true oh yeah mm. sure um she is she's more observant um she is you know um She's a character who, you know, in a lot of ways I fell in love with as I, as I wrote the book, um, a character that I had to, um, journey a little bit further, you know, to, uh, to really know. And she, she certainly is somebody who is trying to, um, trying to understand not so much the past of her place, right. But it's, but it's present tense, um, reality 
and trying to um, trying to create a destiny for herself that that responds to it mm-hmm. right? without reference to where she was from or um, or uh, what kind of um, baggage her family has placed upon her. Tries to erase the board, write it anew. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. There's there's a bit where she she mentions or she I don't know if she mentions or if it's just something she's thinking, but she wants to buy ballet slippers and she has to get the money for them. First tries getting the money from uh, from her mother, who explains why and uh, as 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 you say begins begins at the top with President Clinton, who said there would be jobs. <laughs> it feels like a that is the explanation the Ericas of the world are getting a lot. Start you starting with the top, going all the way down, listing off the reasons why this can't happen. And that's not the kind of thing the Toussaints of the world hear very often. Even if they can't have the thing they're asking for, it's not like, well, the president did this. And then, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think in a lot of ways, when folks are poor, they are much more, um, they are much more uh, cognizant of, the 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 material reality of the country mm-hmm. right the material reality of their society and because of this you know erica and her mother you know know what it is like to oppose power mm-hmm. right in a way that tucson doesn't right there there are um entities and people in uh, in tucson's world that have as much power over him as um erica's and her family's landlord has over them mm-hmm. right as the you know bill collection agencies and their um, employers have over them, um, but Tucson doesn't have to doesn't have to know that you know the edges in his world are softer, um, and you know by contrast, Eric and her mother are much more um, political in a, in a sort certain way, simply because they have to be right. They're they're dealing on a day to day basis with you know. Issues of real economics, you know, what's what food's going to be on the table, what uh, government programs are available and are not, um, what jobs are available and which are and what are not, um, and so forth and so on. So, you know, the 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 material realities of the society are are right there in front of them. In other in other words, in a Tucson's world, you you. Uh the actions of the state are not so perceptible on his everyday life. Like they're affecting it, sure, but. Good luck finding out how, right? Right. And that's the irony, right? Mm. Toussaint understands himself as a, as a, uh, as having this political destiny, Mm. right? As having this social destiny and yet is not living a political life, Mm. right? Mm. Um, Erica sees herself as a ballerina, but is living a life that is uh, far more impacted on a daily basis by the politics of the country, mm. the state, the city, right, etc. And even given the difference in their situation, uh, the, in, in, the, in the comfort of their relative situations, both of them have to come to terms, don't they, with, how to put it, what to do when you're, in some sense, the beneficiary of a struggle, people struggled before you in living memory in ways that are harder than even if your life is hard, you had to struggle. And there's that question of, well, what do I do with it now? And I mean, I'm, I'm living a better life than, than my predecessors. Uh, what, what burden is, is burden the word? What burden does that put on me? What expectations does that put on me? How do you think about it? Hmm. Yeah. Well, I think Tucson definitely, uh, you know, feels a burden, right. um, to kind of live up to and to, to continue, uh, kind of, great legacy capital G greatness yeah. of some kind <laughs> and especially in his, you know, kind of 
paradise inclined teenage mind. Right. But, um, Erica, I don't think feels a burden placed on her by her community. Right. I don't think she feels a lot of expectation, at least not a lot of positive expectation from her community, but, um, she gives herself, um, she, she is just as purposeful as Tucson in crafting a uh, destiny for herself. Mm. Mm. Now you mentioned it in the acknowledgments of your book, you mentioned, uh, you give thanks to a, uh, to a bookstore, I believe you call it the one black bookstore between here and, and Riverside or here, here in San Bernardino mm. that you, you found when you were 17 and searching. What, what, mm. what did you find there? What store was it? So is, is, yeah. it's, is it still there? Can people go? It's not, it's no longer in existence. So okay. Farron Roberts, um, great mentor of mine, uh, opened and uh, ran a bookstore called Phoenix Books on E Street in San Bernardino. Um, and uh, my dad worked across the street and I got my haircut next door. And so it was, you know, it was ever present in my life. Um, I met Omar Tyree there, um, a writer who, um, who has uh, been a, you know, great, uh, great motivator and, you know, um, um, it, you know, in my, uh, in my career, um, I saw Tony Morrison speak, not, mm-hmm. not at the bookstore, but, um, in an event at Cal state San Bernardino mm-hmm. set up by Phoenix books. Um, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar came with one of his books there. It was a great, uh, source of not only literature, but of, um, I don't know of, um, kind of just the, you know, cultivation of, um, my artistic spirit. Uh, Farron is a great guy. He, um, is from Philadelphia and told me, uh, the story that, you know, to go to the bookstore, he had to cross multiple gang territories to get there and every day and he did it. And, um, he, uh, really inspired me to, um, to take a path that is not only, you know, is not simply atypical for, you know, like a young black person, but is atypical within the society itself, right? Mm-hmm. We kind of live in a, or we, we work as writers in, you know, a dying space. And, uh, um, and I think it takes, you know, a certain amount of something to, uh, to, to, um, claim your position as writer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tell me some of the writers you read that whether it was then or later who, who, made you believe directly or indirectly there was uh there was a space in if if the space is dwindling okay but that there was a space for you to operate in as well right well i mentioned faulkner um <clears throat> faulkner really in many ways taught me how to write i uh i was um i became much more aware of how to uh handle sentence and time through faulkner as i'm sure you know thousands of other writers have as well. Um, Ralph Ellison, um, you know, who I teach, uh, all the time now, uh, Ellison, um, really showed me a lot of how to, you know, deal with how, how to write about black life in complex ways mm. and to get beyond some of the, um, get beyond some of the stereotypes that are, um, um, or, or the, um, kind of lazy, ways of thinking that not only white people, but also, you know, black people often participate in mm. when it comes to representate re- representing black life. I would also say though, that, you know, even though I'm not like any kind of, um, aficionado, um, I learned a lot about how to write from listening to rap music. Oh, really? Yeah. 
Um, if you listen to Nas, you can learn as much about writing um, and the intricacy of word use, mm. you know, and powerful, <clears throat> powerful and vivid, um, just line by line work as you can from, you know, reading any number of, um, you know, acclaimed poets or you know, short story writers. Mm. So even despite the differences in conception, differences in medium, it's still words. It still translates. It's still text, ultimately. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's um, driving at saying the most, uh, saying the most, uh, uh, representing you know an action, an individual, an image as vividly as possible mm. in as few words as possible. Right. I mean, that'll always be the goal for anybody writing. Right. Uh, for any good writer, that's the goal. You know, it's mm-hmm. before we all have a time though. Anybody who writes any form of anything, they have a time before they know that when things expand out to great lengths and it's, you know, when did, what was it, was it, was it rap that, uh, that got you into this, into the mind of condensation or was it other writers? What was it that got, that made you realize, uh, this should be, this should be denser, not mm-hmm. more sprawling. Mm-hmm. You know, we may live in a sprawling place, but you don't have to write about it in a sprawling way. Right. Um, actually I know what it was. Oh, okay. <laughs> She'll probably hate yeah. me for saying this, but you know, going back to Susan, Susan Strait, um, and I didn't realize this until years later, but Susan was very particular, not only with me, but with all her students who she spent, you know, um, generous amounts of time with, um, you know, telling, you know, really uh, forcing us to hone in our sentences, to hone in on the meaning of what we were writing and to um, bring it down as much as possible to the quick. Um, I didn't realize until later when I looked at the sweep of Susan's writing career at that time, and we we're talking early 2000s for people who are um, familiar with Susan's work, that uh, she had written four or five books before I had met her, all very long, 400 plus pages, mm. um, and those kind of sprawling narratives that you talk about. And then in 2001, around the time she was working with me, she published High Wire Moon, which was not nominated for na- nominated for the National Book Award, and was about half the length of all those books. Mm. So I realized that it was also a process that she herself right. was going through. You saw less being more right there. Right. Mm. And, um, you know, so, so I would say it really, um, came down to that. Uh, you know, she, there, there's advice that I would give any, any writer, including myself, since I often don't follow it, um, <laughs> to read poetry every day. If you're a prose writer, you should be mm. reading some, at least a poem a day because you need to, you know, uh, read or hear, the, the language, um, you know, broken down to its, to, to its elements. And this is something we haven't talked about yet. There's, there's the narrative voice in the book, but there's the, there's the characters voices. There's the spoken, there's the spoken lines. And I mean, what was most vivid to me was the contrast between the narrative voice and the characters voices, especially in Erica's world on the West side of Highland. It's, I mean, I found the way those characters talked particularly what what am I looking for? It's, you know, I could really I could really hear it being spoken, and you know, you might don't try not to look surprised. I didn't grow up around anybody who talked that way. So tell me what the process was of getting. You know, do you, do you think about the contrast between the narrative voice and the characters? Was it was there trying was there an attempt to maximize that, or were you thinking about it at all? Right. Um, I was definitely thinking about it. Mm. Uh, you know, I've often um, written in voice, and whether writing characters or writing in third person, I still try to write in voice mm. and in different voices. So Erica has an 
kind of an educated way that she thinks and an educated way that she talks. And then when she's more frustrated, she has um, a more hood way that she thinks and a more hood way that she talks. Right. Um, You know, until she's about 15 or 16, she mostly talks the way that the people, you know, that she that she's grown up around speak. And, uh, you know, it's it's not hard to, you know, frankly, for me to 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 write that kind of dialogue because it's largely um, what I heard, you know, Um, who comes into your mind, who from your life comes into your mind when you when you're trying to write that dialogue? Everybody in my family, for a start, everybody in your family, <laughs> except uh, except my except my dad, uh-huh. uh, who's spoken you know much more kind of, quote unquote proper way. But why uh, was he? Why was he the different one? I don't know because he uh, grew up on the west side of Chicago, but uh, he, had, he had a story that um, in fourth grade he had a teacher who told them that they wouldn't get anywhere unless they could you know talk like a white person. Oh, they just said talk like a white person. Yeah, That's how they is, put it, which is you know common you know you hear that all the time black people say that all the time and uh they say it because it's true um that that you get much further if you can represent yourself um in formal settings as being you know part of the mainstream culture Mm. i mean that you know when in rome right right? it's like Um, if you're living in a different country it's going to help if you talk the language of this country sure okay (laughs) and so um so there's so there's that way that um, it's not that the it's not that American culture doesn't have any um, tolerance, but it simply does help. Mm. So um, so he learned that and he uh, and he uh, mastered that. He he spoke much more clearly than I do. <laughs> <laughs> mm. You mentioned writing about black life and the setting in Southern California. I want to know what in your mind what. What is the, was there a challenge there from the dominance of Los Angeles black life, South Los Angeles black life being so much in the zeitgeist as far as this is what, this is what black people live like in Southern California. You know, I was in down in Lamert Park a little while ago writing something on it and it's naturally, I went back to John Singleton, watched some of his movies because he's from Lamert Park and he's, uh, I think this baby boy is set entirely in Lamert Park and his, his movies seem to be more nuanced, uh, putting up an image of Southern California black life, but still that's a small region like right there is, does that, did that feel dominant when you set out to write a, a novel of the other half of Southern California? I mean, mm. even though it's, you're writing about a small place too. Sure, it's Highland. Sure. And all of us are writing about a small place. Yeah. If you're in New York city, right. Mm. I mean, yeah. it said that, you know, we don't live in, you don't live in LA. You live in a neighborhood in LA. You don't live in New York city. You live in, you know, your neighborhood. Yeah. I mean, it is, it is a challenge because it's not the popular understanding, not only of the, you know, mainstream public, but it's not the uh, popular understanding of, uh, you know, most black people. Mm. Um, you know, I've been told by black people from outside of Southern California that there are no black people in, you know, uh, outside of LA, you know, I mean, people might not realize that who, who live far away from Highland and they might look it up on Google maps, see where it is. And they say, there's black people out there. I didn't, right. I mean, they probably haven't been out there themselves, but it still might come as a surprise. Right. Not, you know, I'm no sociologist, but the, you know, as, uh, you know, people for various reasons, but, but mostly economic pressures have, um, moved east of Los Angeles into, um, into, um, you know, cheaper, cheaper areas to live, mm-hmm. you know, it has, uh, changed the, the racial and ethnic composition of, of the state and of, mm-hmm. you know, of Southern California. And because of that, um, there is, uh, you know, a large black population in the Inland Empire mm-hmm. in all of its cities, 
uh, but particularly in San Bernardino, Moreno Valley. Yeah. Mm. Now today, you, you just got done earlier today driving from the San Francisco Bay Area down here. Tell me what kind of a transition that feels like coming from the one half of California to the, uh, to the other, the, the one, one of the major cities to the largest city in California. And what is, what, what changes when you're coming down here? Mm. Um, I think that there are significant differences between the Bay Area and LA, definitely between the Bay Area and the IE, but, uh, Inland Empire. But I would say that, especially between the Bay and LA, that sometimes those differences are exaggerated, especially by folks in the Bay. Uh, I'm glad to hear you say that. It seems that way. And I, I've always thought the difference, the important Californian line is east-west, not north-south. Mm. Yeah, that, that's a great comment. Um, that, uh, you know, that, because that's where the economic and kind of cultural divide is, mm. right? Coastal inland. And, uh, you know, I see a lot of similarities between the Bay and LA and, and many of the differences are more structural. Mm. have to do with the, uh, way that, um, you know, mass transit has or has not been, you know, organized. Um, the way that the car culture has or has not been, you know, uh, emphasized that, um, than anything inherent in the populace itself. Um, so, uh, I would just say to, yeah, I love the Bay area. Obviously I've decided to make my home, my home there, but everyone here likes it too. So, you know, (laughs) we don't hate anything about the the North. I don't know what they're doing up there, but right. Right. Um, sometimes there does seem to be a, uh, one way, a very one way rivalry, (laughs) you know, here, uh, between, uh, between the two sides and, uh, LA is not aware <laughs> that, <laughs> that, 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 that there, that there is a battle going on. So they, mm-hmm. y- y- y'all can cool it. <laughs> <laughs> now we, we mentioned this, this bus trip that, uh, Toussaint takes to the West side Highland. And this, this to him feels like the biggest journey he's ever taken, even though he's been farther. But for you, what was, what were, what were the ways you first began reaching outside of, of where you grew up? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, um, I think first of all, um, going to visit my family, um, most of whom lived in, you know, circumstances that were different, um, from my own. Um, also, um, you know, my dad told me <clears throat> when I was playing sports that if you say you want to have a pickup game, you want to play basketball, you want to get better, you know, you got to go to the hood. That's where the best basketball is. Right. People compete more fiercely. Um, they, and because of that, because of that, they tend to be better, uh, at basketball, they, uh, or any other sport. Um, they are, you know, because they're, they're measuring themselves against each other and, um, there, there's a hunger there, mm-hmm. um, to, to go back to, uh, the subject we touched on earlier, mm-hmm. might have a most deaf line or you know, Yasim Bay is calling himself now, you know, <laughs> legendary athletes who played by the trash heap, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And the Chicago neighborhood and the fret in the West Fresno neighborhood when we moved out here that my dad grew up in, uh, was, uh, chock full of, you know, professional athletes, Olympic, um, uh, Olympic medalists, um, you know, and so forth. And even as, um, you know, and most people will see that as just, you know, well, there are a lot of black people there. So of course, you know, uh, that would be the case, you know, but, um, his point in, uh, advising me to, you know, find my pickup games over there was that it's far more than racial and it really is a class divide, mm. right? That, um, creates, uh, that, that creates this, um, kind of preponderance of athletes in the hood. Mm. So, mm. 
it it's easy especially in America to look at everything in terms of race but you'll learn more if you break it down on a number of different axes then right not just not just about basketball but everything right right mm-hmm. right and so that and you know really that was that that is a um foundational yeah you know tenet of the of the novel mm-hmm. that even though you know when Eric and Toussaint meet each other um, at their college orientation and assume one because they're from the same hometown and two because they're two of the only black kids at the orientation that they're going to have a ton in common, right. right? They find that they have very little in common, mm-hmm. right? And kind of dislike each other on top of it. <laughs> um, that's, uh, you know, that, that's not atypical. I mean, it's true on the one hand that as black folks in the Western hemisphere, as the descendants of slaves, that we do form a diaspora. And we have brothers and sisters in Brazil, in the islands, in um, in Canada, etc. You know, in Europe. But it's also true that oftentimes we don't um, have much in common with other Black people in our neighborhoods. We might have more in common with, or in our in our cities, um, we might have more in common with white people or Latinos or Asians in those places because our uh, class status, our educational status, our um, you know the various other indices, you know, uh, uh, on which we are, on which we're located, um, might be, you know, more in line. Mm. Right. And so, yeah, there are definitely realities beyond race that oftentimes the kind of, you know, typical American dialogue, you know, doesn't, uh, take enough into account. This is a feeling to underscore uh, the feeling of being expected to have a connection with somebody mm. that you've never met being expected to have connections with strangers because you share, I mean, sometimes the, 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 the thinnest possible thing, really. It's, it's, it could be somebody who speaks a different language from someplace else, somebody you wouldn't like. Uh, you know, if I'm in another country where there's not a lot of white people and I see a white guy, there's no expectation that I'm going to talk to the white guy. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, okay, there's another one. It's not, what, what, tell me a little more about, I don't know if I have a specific question, but a little more about that feeling about how, oh, I'm expected to be, I'm expected to have more of a connection than I think I probably do with a lot of people. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, uh, I think that the basic thing there is that, you know, because for so long we uh, we as black people were cordoned off by our by race, you know, and, um, you know, within the law, you know, within the within the systems that um, that govern American society that we, you know, that are, you know, our forebears naturally created, um, you know, kind of reaction formations around, around race. And, uh, it was only logical to do so. And so, um, our consciousness and our ideologies are very much racial, you know, they're, they're other things as well, but they're, they're very much racial. And, um, as class becomes a more determining factor, right. Um, than race, in a lot of, maybe not all, but in a lot of, um, uh, social situations that, uh, expectation of, of similarity because I'm black and you're black, uh, you know, is, uh, you know, not necessarily true. I just, you know, I was on the BART train yesterday and I saw this brother who, you know, um, looked like he was 18, 19 years old and he's talking to a girl who, you know, on his phone, he said, um, you know, you just, you told me I was acting outside of my race and he said, what the hell is my race? <laughs> right. And then he went in and he said, you know, we're not a monolith. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. It's like, that's why I knew I was in the Bay Area. Right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, we are not a monolithic people. He, you know, yes. he, um, you know, he became a scholar all sure, of a sudden. Sure. It, it was beautiful, mm-hmm. really. Um, he had a whole treatise on the, on the whole subject oh, yeah. spoken into his phone there on Bart. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, and it's true, you know, that, um, we're certainly not a monolith and there are, um, you know, ideology always moves slower than reality. Mm. Right. Mm. So there's no, um, I, I wouldn't expect, um, I wouldn't expect, uh, kind of our, uh, social institutions to, um, uh, to, to, to be able to be completely responsive to every little change in society. And that's where, you know, the novel comes in. That's where, um, creative arts come in because we can, uh, speak to, you know, um, to unique particular local realities that oftentimes, you know, um, politics and, uh, you know, and, uh, other, you know, institutions cannot. You know, on the matter of speaking to local realities through literature, what, did you have an idea of what you wanted to get across about life in the Inland Empire that people wouldn't know? Because people outside of the Inland Empire don't know life there. Uh, what what was important to convey? Maybe not about the experience of everybody there, but just what's something you wanted to get across about what it is to live there that someone wouldn't realize unless they did? Hmm. Um, I... Uh... That first of all, that it exists. Sure. Step one. <laughs> um, two, that I think it requires um, for everybody, you know, white, black, skin, brown, uh, Asian American, etc. Um, that requires um, a certain um, determination mm. to uh, to to um, have consciously located you know, oneself and, um, in, you know, in a place that is, you know, um, not only environmentally harsh, but, um, uh, sometimes economically so, um, and to, you know, to, to make our way. So, um, you know, uh, there are, um, there's this way that Tucson, um, especially after he has his, uh, seizure early in the book, um, realizes that, um, that it's his parents and moving from Los Angeles out, to, uh, out to this, you know, city an hour away from a city that matters. Right. Um, have, haven't done something insubstantial. Hmm. He realizes there, there are reasons and there are repercussions from that. It's not, it's not simply a relocation out of convenience. Right. Hmm. Um, nobody happens to be in the Inland empire. No, no, nobody happens to be in California to begin with. (laughs) And, uh, yeah. Um, also I I would say to, you know, further answer your question that it is a unique place, Mm. um, that it has many of the, um, the kind of, uh, characteristics that we would associate with California as a whole. It has a great deal of quirkiness. Mm. Um, but that it also is, that it also is particular, um, various ways that it is sometimes very suburban, sometimes very, uh, ex urban and, um, you know, in cert- certain areas, you know, impoverished. Um, I wanted to get that across. Um, so, yeah. Mm. How do you think now that you have a, the perspective on these three major parts of California that you go between seemingly regularly, you know, what do, do you think of these as, as, 
the three major parts? I mean, given 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 your experience in California, is it possible for you to think of it as one unified place? Because it doesn't seem that way to me. You were just talking to. Yeah. Um, yeah, California's a planet, right? It's <laughs> yeah. um, it's definitely. Uh, in, in, there are two ways to answer this question, right? Because somebody coming from who lives outside of California, and you know, talk to plenty of people about uh, this topic, you know, who live in Kentucky or New Orleans or New York or wherever, see California very much as its own thing. They see us as you know, constituting a uh, you know a, a culture very much apart from from the rest of the country, um, but just like with black folk, right? Just like with Americans or any other group of people, um, there are internal differences, right? Uh, so I would say that those are the three major distinctions that I see, uh, in California. I know we're kind of leaving San Diego out of this. Yeah, I guess it's important to mention San Diego, but it's not, not a place I have much experience with. Is it one you have experience with? Um, not the kind of in-depth experience. You're not going to set a novel there, in other words. No. no. <laughs> Finally, there's this image that, uh, not even an image, just a, just a remark from Toussaint that uh, seems relevant here. He, he describes going to a family reunion, saying he's never seen so many black people together somewhere else together, uh, which made him feel both good and bad at the same time. What is that? Hmm. I think that Toussaint very much thirsts after the black community, the, 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 the kind of collective um, that he was not born into, that his parents were born into, that probably most of his relatives were born into, but that he wasn't. Um, and it's that collective that created, you know, the civil rights movement. It's that collective that, uh, that, that you know, freed us, um, not only in this country, but around the world, and that freed many other people in, in that wake. And so he, uh, I think that he, um, desires it in that, in that, in that way. At the same time, he understands that there is a, uh, there, that there would be a terrific price, um, more perhaps not material, materially, but psychologically in trying to, um, bridge that gap into, um, a world that he's not from and that in many ways no longer exists mm. that he would have to, that it would have to be an act of the mind. Mm. Right? Imagination. Mm -hmm. mm. And, uh, you know, this is, this is the quandary that he finds himself in. He does, you know, um, in the course of the book, um, come to a resolution, you know, mm. he's, he's, he's not just, uh, um, he's not completely paralyzed by thought. He does come to a resolution. That's pretty deaf. That's pretty definite. But um, but it takes him a while. Good to realize thought doesn't always have to paralyze you, especially as a novelist. Oh, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Right. We, you know, we make decisions. And the, the great thing is, you know, um, even though Tucson's story stops uh, when he's 18 years old here, that, um, you know, really, really goes on. Right. We can have lots of phases and, you know, try it one way, try it a different way. See what the hell works. <laughs> I've been speaking here with Keenan Norris. He teaches English and African-American literature at Evergreen Valley College. He's the author of the new novel, Brother and the Dancer. Keenan, thanks so much. Okay. Thank you.
This has been the podcast of the Los Angeles Review of Books. I've been Colin Marshall. Find more from me at colinmarshall.org and find more from the LARB at lareviewofbooks.org. Thanks.